First John 2, beginning at verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness, even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. And you may be seated. Good morning. By now you know I'm not James Mullet, but it's good to be here. Happy Father's Day. Um, thank you, Dad, for what you've given me, and especially for pointing me to Jesus Christ and what he's done for me and, and for his word. My heart is a little heavy this morning, um, especially thinking about the Kaufman family and um, their journey. Um, and also heavy because of the, um, the topic we have this morning before us. I know I should probably be giving a Father's Day message, but this is a message that I um, was studying before, so um, it is a message I'm going to give this morning. Um, been preaching out of 1 John, I think last December I had a sermon on 1 John chapter 1, and the message that we're going to get into this morning is, do you know that you know him? Um, the message, like I said, kind of gives me a heavy heart in the fact that it's a kind of a controversial message in a lot of ways, and I'm not sure what I'm doing standing before you. Hopefully, I'm opening up the Word of God, and we will let the Word speak tonight, and, or this morning, and it's not just John's opinion, and I'm not talking John the Apostle, I'm talking John Lewis's opinion. Um, and more important even than that, it is the Word of God and the opinion from the Word of God. Um, and I think the third reason um, my heart is heavy is, is again, um, it is a very serious topic, and as you dig into the topic, you're going to hear things um, that may bring conviction, but not only may bring conviction, but may bring um, a heavy heart um, in our own lives, hopefully, but even in a heavy heart and lives of people around us. Um, anyways, like I said, I'm going to open up with, do we know that we know him? And it's, I guess we could say, assurance of salvation, part two. Um, you can open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to spend our morning in the first 11 verses, which I have no right to be going through 11 verses this past, um, because they are full of lots of very important words from John to the children, or to the churches in Ephesus. 
And these are the churches that I think John cared about deeply. I've read one place that this may be an older or a newer book than the book of Revelation or the newest book of the Bible. Does that make sense? Um, it was the last, some people think it was the last book written, even book, written after the book of Revelation by John. Um, to the churches in Ephesus with a heavy heart. Um, because things in these churches, if you read Revelation, we know about these churches in Ephesus. And because the things in these churches, um, there were some things going on that he wanted to make very clear. So they understand the gospel salvation story. And they understand that they know that they know him. Many of us have grown up in settings believing our good works will help us be saved. Maybe not saved, but help us be saved. Legalism, like we, would like, like we probably call that. And many of us have also been tempted to fall in the other ditch. Created to give um, a ditch where there is a whole branch of evangelical theology created to give assurance of salvation to lukewarm Disobedient people who call themselves Christians. For every mile of roads, there's two miles of ditches. You may have heard that before. Basically saying, there's a lot more room in the ditches than there is in the straight and narrow. And Satan loves to put us in the ditches, whether they're one ditch or the other. And he loves to keep us in the ditch, especially in the ditch when we're talking about God's greatest gift, the gift of salvation. 1 John is a great chapter refuting both of these ditches. And you'll find that. If you dig into it. And hopefully, what I encourage you to do, if anything, you disagree with what I say, which could well um, have a right to disagree with it, study the word. See, look, read First John. There is so much in there to be learned for me um, and I think for us today. First John's a chapter refuting both these stitches. John loved and cared for his people of Ephesus. So he laid out a clear salvation message to them in this letter. Hoping they would understand and grasp what Jesus has for his children. It is a clear salvation message. It is very clear for us today. If you read it, if you don't want to know the salvation message, if you're scared to read the salvation message, if you're scared to read, if you're scared to know if you have assurance of salvation, don't read First John. I'm saying that sarcastically. Please do read it. Um, but if you do read it, I think we will all probably be convicted in some way or another. Too often Christians today don't hear what John has written in his letter. This letter does not fit their gospel, so they avoid it. I believe this letter is so relevant for Weavertown today, for me. I want to remind us of the key verse. Uh, most commentators say the key verse in the book of 1 John is the one here, um, 1, John 5, uh, 1 John 5, chapter 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This book was written to give the church of Ephesus and everyone who reads it an opportunity to know that they have eternal life, assurance of salvation. We also find this message in our text today, verse 3. Look at the verse. And hereby we do know, if we, we do know him if we keep his commandments. No, we do know that we know him. Made it very... Mary made it very sure and secure. Um, I hope everyone here wants to know that they know him. That they know that they're saved and that their name is written in the book of life. You see, being assured that we are saved is not a complicated doctrine like Satan would like to have us believe. It is only, it is 
truly believing in God and his word, faith. And then because of our redemption, we will have a changed life marked by obedience and a love for Christ, a walk. It is a faith, and because of the change in our life, there is a walk, proving we are saved. 1 John 2 teaches us both concepts, a faith in Christ and a walk with Christ because we are saved. Two very important, important doctrines. John clearly, again in chapter 2, gives us instructions on what has changed, what a changed life looks like. What it looks like to have fellowship with Christ or to walk in the light. Don't forget, we're not talking about Christian perfectionism. I'm going to bring this up pretty often. We are not talking about Christian perfectionism. None of us are perfect. And if we are, we are, and we say we are, we are like it says in chapter 1, verse um, 8, I think it is, we are a liar. That's what it says. We are not perfect. We are redeemed. Um, sinned. We, um, and I'm not talking about Christian perfectionists. Don't forget, I think chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter 1, blows the idea away that we as Christians are perfect. But we don't need to continue to walk in sin. First John 1, 7 and 8. We know those verses. If um, we sin, we can bring it before the Father and we can repent. In chapter 1, we were asked some questions. Do we have fellowship with the Father? Are we walking in the light? Are we, brothers and sisters? If we're not, we are not Christians. Um, and if we are, are we repenters? I think a very good sign of being a Christian too is that we are repenting. Very important to remember. Um, this morning in chapter 2, we are given a few tests that will help us know again um, if we are saved. Do we keep his commandments? We'll find that in verse, um, I think, 3 and 4. Do we walk as Jesus walked? And do we love our brothers? Three tests. That we'll get into. But before we get into the test, I'd like to, again, um, just look at understanding. Do we understand our salvation? And I know it may say, sound redundant. I've preached on this before. But I think it's so important. Um, John does it. He preaches it over and over again. Do we understand our salvation? Um, understanding our salvation always starts with understanding our sins. 1 John 2, verse 1. Let's look at the first verse. My dear children, or my little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. Paul Washer says it this way. If we're saying we have found a new relationship with Christ, salvation, I will ask you first, have you found a new relationship with sin? You see, we can't love Christ and love sin. When we become Christians, we get a new relationship with sin, and that is we hate sin. Um, salvation begins with an understanding of our sin. What is the definition of sin? What is a definition? Anybody? What is a definition of sin? Nobody. Missing the mark. Okay. I'm going to get a little, maybe a little more hard than missing the mark. Um, it's not more hard than that, but it sounds a little more severe. Sin is insubordination. I remember the day, um, I think I might have been in fourth or fifth grade, and I was sitting in chapel over here in the old basement, and I, won't, I don't even remember who the principal was, and I don't want to say who it was, even if I would remember. He came out with a big stick, and he called that stick Caesar. 
and in front of all of us little children, he said, this is going to be used when there's insubordination. Something like that. I just remember that kind of vaguely. And I think I remember going to a friend afterwards um, asking what insubordination was. Um, I'll never forget that. Um, you see, sin is rebellion. Everyone, and the verse there in 1 John 3, 4 makes it very clear what sin is. Everyone who sins, who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. <clears throat> in other words, sin is man's refusal to submit to God's law or his word. It's insubordination to what the Bible says or what Jesus says and asks us to do. Does that sound simple enough? God telling us what to do, and we're saying, I'm not going to do it. That's sin. It's in, it's in subordination. Um, when God says things like, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, and someone divorces and marries another, sin. In other words, or maybe a little closer home, when God says, whosoever looketh on a woman lusteth after her, hath committed adultery with her in his, already in his heart, and we're looking at porn, we're sinning. When God says, bring up your children in the instruction of the Lord, and you make no effort to teach your children the scriptures, for us fathers, Father's Day, that's sin. When God says, love your enemies and refuse to love him, that's sin. That's rebellion against God. John Piper says this, sin about sin, quote, Among civilized people, sin is usually discreet, and it's not usually considered to be very serious. Not many people weep over their sins these days, even though it stands to reason that nothing in all the world is more wicked or more terrifying than insubordination against our Creator. Amen? I'm not hearing a lot of amens, and I'm not hearing a lot of... And I think I know why. Because a sermon like this is one that usually tramples on me. Um, and usually is one we don't want to hear as much of. This is true. We are terrified of our sins. <clears throat> this is so true. Are we terrified of our sins? Not our neighbors. But of our sins. Sin... I repeat again, is very serious. Second thing, sin is very serious. Um, John took the church of Ephesus' sins very seriously. My dear children, write I unto you that you sin not. And I have four reasons why I believe sin is very serious. First reason is sin is serious because it insults or disrespects the suffering of Christ. Now, follow with me. Getting a little deep as I uh, deepen this thing on sin. But listen carefully. It takes the cross lightly. This is very important. Christ suffered and died to change and purify us. To abolish sin. Look at 1 Peter 3 verse 18. If you want to turn to that, you can. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Now we're saying, when you sin, I do not regard your suffering as sufficient to keep me back from the act of sin. You get that? 
That's serious. When we sin, brothers and sisters, when I sin, we're saying, what you did on the cross isn't good enough. You have died. <clears throat> you may have died to prevent me from doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Get it? That's insubordination. That's serious. Sin is serious because it suggests that we have the nature of Satan rather than God. Now that sounds really severe. And I probably wouldn't say that other than read, open your Bibles up, turn a couple pages to 1 John 3 verse 8. Sin is serious because it says, says that we have the nature of Satan. Are you serious? How can you say that? I'm not going to say that. We'll let Apostle John say it. Um, I did say it. But we'll let Apostle John say it here in 1 John 3, 8. John is very blunt about this. He who commits sin is of the devil. Verse 9 gives the opposite. No one born of God commits sin, for God's nature abides in him. This is not talking about Christian perfectionism here, but a life of sinning. When we insubordinately decide that I'm going to keep right on doing this sin even though I know it's wrong. I've been convicted of it but I'm going to keep right on doing it and I'm not going to, nobody's going to stop me. That's what he's talking about. It's a sin that's unhated and too often unconquered. The third one is sin is serious. When we live a life of sin we don't have assurance of salvation. Verses 3 and 4 of our text today. We proclaim, let me read that, that which is we have seen, oh, I'm sorry, chapter 2. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I won't go into the deep, <clears throat> I won't go into this too deeply, but I think we can see um, the seriousness of this. Look at, um, I'm sorry, I want to get to the next one. I'm ahead of myself here. Sin is serious because it can put you beyond the reach of hope. Now what I mean by that, look at chapter 5 verses 16 and 17. And all this is found in, in 1 John. But here's some verses that are interesting and I'm not going to get into, too deep, I'm not going to get in, into them too deeply. Um, but if we look at these verses, we see something Rather interesting. Verses 16 and 17. If any man see his brother's sin, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them. That sin is not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not unto death. Two things we see here. Keep it from being too complicated. What do we see? Two things there. There is a what? A sin that's unto death. Okay? And that means... If we get involved in that, if we continue in that rebellion, there's probably not much hope. And the other thing we read, what? There's a sin that's not unto death. Thank God for all of us, right? Um, that God continues to help us repent. Um, but sin is serious because it can put us beyond the reach of hope. Now I hope um, we have all see in the verse, first verse here that sin is very serious. And it brings us to my next point. We do not need to despair when we sin. I think that's so important for us to remember. My little children, I'm writing this to you, that you may not sin. What does this in indicate here? 
it indicates that we as Christians still do sin. John is saying, my words in this book, which is, by the way, he is saying, um, are the words of Christ. We will, we will need to deal with sin. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. What is he saying here? He that knoweth God listens. Let's look at, I'm sorry, let's, let's look at chap, um, 1 John chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. What is he saying here about sin? Let me read these verses. 1 John 4, 5, and 6. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God, and he that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby we know that know we the spirit of truth and the spirit is and the spirit of error. What does this indicate? John is saying, My words in this book which, by the way, are the words of Christ, can help you overcome sin if you, live, if you live by what? The book. What's he saying here? He that knoweth God listens to us. And who's us? The apostles. He that is not of God doesn't listen to us. When we read this book, we have two decisions to make about the book of 1 John. Either the book is true, or John's extremely arrogant. Because John says here, you'll, if you listen to me, what's he say? If you listen to me, um, you'll know the truth. So John is saying here, either this, you, you have to take that either this book is true, or we're just listening to somebody who is extremely arrogant, saying, I know the truth, and if you listen to me, um, if you listen to me, you will know the truth. Let's move on in our verse here. And I think a verse that gets probably um, a little more exciting for us. Do we understand our salvation? Understanding our salvation always starts with understanding our sin. And if we sin, it is remembering that, how's the verse continue? We have an advocate with the Father. Now, we're getting into a lot of words that we probably don't use very often. Um, and we probably wonder what these words are. And hopefully, I can... Um, Bring these words down to my level or maybe our level here. What is an advocate? It says don't sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate. By the way, it's interesting. He says don't sin. And then he says, but if we do sin. Now why does he do that? Some of us here are probably saying, boy, why would you give people a break? Why wouldn't you say just don't sin? And some of us over here are probably saying, What's the big deal? Why are you making a big deal about sin? See, that's the mercies and the prophets among us probably. Um, but he's saying here, if we sin, don't sin, but if we sin, we have an advocate. And who is this? What is this advocate? We know who the advocate is, Jesus Christ. But what is an advocate? Well, a very simple, easy word for advocate is a lawyer. Okay? So, brothers and sisters, we know we sin. And we know we're going to become, well, actually, even before we, let's just say, we know we are going to become before the judgment seat of Christ. And we don't have a chance, right? In ourselves, we don't. There's no good works that will ever, ever help us in front of the most holy, awesome God. Um, so we have to have an advocate. And that advocate we know is Jesus Christ. He is our lawyer. Um, 
Advocate's a fancy word for lawyer. Jesus Christ is, is our lawyer. But why would he defend us sinners? Anybody? Because he loved us. Jesus stands as the advocate between our repentant hearts and the law. If his blood has been applied to our lives through faith and confession of our sins, our conversion experience, he pleads our case with the righteous judge. You can kind of imagine the conversation going like this. Father, I know this one is sin. He has violated our commands. He is guilty as charged. However, you have said that my sacrifice is sufficient payment for the debt he owes. My righteousness was applied to his account when he trusted in me for salvation and forgiveness. I have paid the price so he can be pronounced not guilty. There is no debt left for him. I have paid the price. There is, there, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Colossians 2.14 is another um, good verse. You can turn with that. Turn to that verse if you like. Another excellent verse for thinking about being before the Father. Blotting out the handwriting of blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to the cross. That's what our lawyer's doing. That's what our advocate's doing for us. He's nailing our sins to the cross. That is a wonderful thought um, because we cannot do it by ourselves. Jesus has already made sufficient payment to redeem us. Our sins are under the blood. The advocate steps before the judge and pleads our case. Next, verse 2. He is our propitiation, removing the wrath of God from us by the death of Jesus Christ. I think the other week I had a devotional on propitiation. I don't want to go into that word too deeply because we're getting all kinds of big words and getting lost probably in those big words. But somebody, do you remember, what does the word propitiation mean? Anybody? The word got us too big. We're forgetting what it means already. He, Christ is removing propitiation, removing the wrath of God from us by the death of Jesus Christ. Propitiation comes when God, or when Christ removes the wrath of God, and the wrath of God was given to Christ instead of us. That's what propitiation. There is no wonderful news in all the world that Christ has endured the wrath of God in our place so that our sins are no longer counted against us. That is what it means that Christ is the propitiation. The wrath of God was put on Christ instead of us. Think of it this way. Christ is our attorney. He's our advocate. Okay? For you who enjoy law school or um, think about the attorney coming to the trial. And Christ comes as our attorney. Now the attorney doesn't do you any good if he has nothing to bring along, right? Seen that in trials already where an innocent person becomes guilty because the defendant had a bad lawyer that didn't bring anything along with him. What does the lawyer Jesus Christ bring with us, with him? What? Salvation. Salvation? Forgiveness. 
forgiveness, the blood. He brings the propitiation. And that's his blood. The wrath he took on him and removes, and he, that's his portfolio. That's what he's going to bring as a lawyer and say, God, this is what I have. We're freed. Um, he stands before his Father in heaven, and every time we sin, he doesn't make a new propitiation. He doesn't die again and again. Instead, he opens up his portfolio, lays the exhibit of the cross on the bench before the judge. Photographs of the crown of thorns, lashings, mocking soldiers, agonizing of the cross, the final cry of victory, it is finished. And he says, this is the case I make. John's, my sins, your sins, have been redeemed by the blood. I love how um, the commentator says, he says he brings the lashings, the crown of thorns, the blood, all the torment that took place, the wrath that God put on Jesus and says, this is why he's free. This is why you are saved. This is why your sins are forgiven. Not because of anything you've done. Does that make sense? Can you, can your righteous or can your filthy rags be a propitiation? Can G Jesus Christ take your best things you've ever done and said, this is why you're free? Absolutely not. They would, God would say, not a chance. That does not take my wrath away. But because of the blood of Christ, because of what he did on the cross, our sins can be forgiven. Wow. That is what he is doing every day for us and what we're doing and what are we doing about it. Are we taking our salvation serious? Are we spurring our salvation? Is what God did and is doing for us making a difference in our walk? It better had. If it is not, we should be asking the question, am I really saved? Have I really accepted the blood of Jesus Christ for my sins? John, and I'm saying this because that's what we read in 2 John, or 1 John chapter 2. John's aim is asking these questions in 1 John is that we not, is that we not, is that we not have to live in sinless perfection no, he knows that's impossible. <clears throat> he knows that's impossible in this sin-cursed world. But it is that we walk in the light and that we have fellowship with the Father and that we become repenters. First John brings a unique com combination, and we see that in the first two verses, of warning and comfort, of threat and promise, of caution and encouragement. That's so neat. When we think of what Christ's done, uh, we need both. We need that caution. We need that um, promise. We need that comfort. But we also need to be warned um, and cautioned. Do we know that we know him? Now let's go to verse 3. Christ our attorney is advocate. Sorry. Tests that will help us give assurance of our salvation. The first test is found in verse 3. Do we keep his commandments? And I know probably many of us, when we hear this, we're like, no, I can't do this. I don't. Well, that's why 1 John brings this to us and says, if we don't and we can't, we need to go back to the cross. We need to keep repenting. This thing of keeping the commandments is very serious. I don't think he's talking about the Ten Commandments here or the laws and the prophets in the Old Testament, maybe part of that. But he's talking about the commandments of Christ. 
the ones he gave to the church. There are many of them. If you read the New Testament, after we, after Christ came, he gave many, many commandments. Probably more than the Old Testament. Different than the laws of the Old Testament. If you don't believe that, turn to, Philippi, or turn to 1 Thessalonians, just for an example. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5. If you look at that there, how many commandments you think there are in 1 Thessalonians 5? Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Quench not the spirit, spirit, despise not prophesy, prove all things. There's about 25 of them there. The New Testament is full of Christ's commandments. And the number one commandment, which the next three that we're going to go through have to do with, if you look closely, all three of them, um, all three tests, go back to the greatest commandment, which is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And you're going to notice most of the commandments are, sur are surrounded by those three. And we're going to, as we go dig, dig into this deeper, we're going to see the commandment of love. For example, um, you're probably thinking by now, keeping God, Christ's commandment looks even harder. How can we ever do this? And again, remember, it's not Christ's perfectionism, but a walk of life. Something we can only do because Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit lives within us. It's a walk. It's a desire to, to move forward in Christ and follow Christ. Since Christ came to the earth, he's talking about a new way of thinking. A changed heart. One where God's commandments are written in our hearts. The heart comes only from salvation in Christ. First thing we see in verse 4 is if we say we know him. Or say, we are children, or say we are Christians and don't keep his commandments, we're liars. Second thing we see in verse 5, look closely. And when and only when we keep his commandments, our love for him is perfected. And the third thing we see clearly in verse 5. If we want to know that we are in him, we keep his commandments. So how do we keep his commandments? This looks overwhelming, I think for a lot of us. Verse 6 gives us a clue to this. The answer is what? In verse 6. How do we keep his commandments? Okay. Abiding in him and walk as he walked. Abiding in him and walk as he walked. That brings us to the second test. Are we walking as he walked? And we see verses 6 to 8. We get into this test. And how did he walk? This new way of thinking has something to do with walking as he walked. John 13.34. Anybody know that verse? A new commandment I give unto you. And that is what? Somebody? That ye love one another. That's walking as he walked. Um, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are his disciples, if you love for one another. Well, you say, that's easy. In today's world, this thing of love makes it sound very easy. We just love each other, right? Is that really what he's saying? It's much greater than that. This is, and how did he love? A sacrificial love. A requirement for a Christian, a test of our salvation, is to walk as he walked. Exactly like Christ? No, we're not Christ. We're not perfect like Christ. But we walk, how did Christ walk? He sacrificed for others. Um, we love the way he loved. 
Again, this does not seem possible, but remember, it's not Christ's perfection, but his desire and a walk of life, a direction, a movement toward Christ, to walk like he walked. Christ is our example. We will never be completely like him, but we will need to continue to become like him. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Notice it says an offering and a sacrifice. So what does that mean? If we're Christians, we're doing what? We're offering ourselves up to Christ, first of all, and the people around us. We're sacrificing what we want for other people. The world thinks sacrificial love for Christ and others is foolishness. Um... When a Christian father in Syria is asked to lay down his faith, and if he doesn't, he will be martyred. And he becomes martyred because he refuses to lay down his faith. And his family suffers, maybe goes into slavery, and horrible things happen to his family. That is foolishness in in the eyes of the world. Or maybe a little closer. We own a business and we have employees that mistreat us. Or hurt our business. How do we handle it? Do we want to be more. Do we. Want more important. What's more important for our business. Or more important for that person. I know what most business coaches would say. If you don't fire them or do something about them. They'd say that's foolishness. I think we could lay down many many examples for us. That the world would call foolishness when we sacrificially love those around us. You see, the test of walking like Christ walked is a sacrificial love. is a test for us Christians that gives us assurance of salvation. If we're <clears throat> and then the third one. And I don't have time to go into this one very deep. Um, fortunately, John continues to talk about this third test. So I won't get into it very deeply. But it's a test that's very important. And it's the test of do we love our brothers? Now the last test we find this morning in verses 9 to 11 talks about loving our brothers. It must also mean they have had a problem in their church with loving each other in these churches of Ephesus. I can't believe it, but they had problems with loving each other. It can hardly, it can hardly, I can hardly believe this would actually be a problem. And yet we know, of course, it's a problem. It's a problem found all around us. I guess I'm not surprised we still have this problem in our churches today. Look at the church splits around us. Um, but I guess what, is, what he's really asking is, does Weavertown have this problem? Let's make it personal. Do I have this problem? In these verses, the test is almost the same test as the one we just gave earlier. Are we walking, in the, uh, are we walking as he walked? But he brings it into the negative context. And he says this. He that saith he is in the light, but hateth his brother, is a liar. I believe he's stepping it up a little here. He's getting a little more serious about this thing of love. And he saith, he, he that saith he loves his brother is a liar. He saith he is in the light, but hateth his brother, is a liar. You see, I think this third test is stepping it up a little more. And he even brings the negative out in this and saying, um, if you say you love and you don't, you're a liar. My blunt translation for this verse is, we can't be a Christian and have assurance of salvation and hate our brother. 
Now that sounds blunt. But is it, am I misreading it? I don't think so. When you become, when we come to the judgment seat of Christ and we hate our brother, I don't think my version will be too blunt. This is serious. The opposite of light, which we're going to see in these next verses, it talks about light. The opposite of light is darkness. The opposite of Christ is Satan. The opposite of love is hate. These camps will never mix. Verse 11 gives us a very interesting point about hating our brother. When we hate someone, what does it say there? We are, look at it carefully. Somebody tell me, what does it say in verse 11? When we hate someone, we are, okay. We're in darkness. The point I didn't realize here before, but most people don't know that hate someone, don't really know they hate them because they are in darkness. That's scary. And that's why we need to open up the book, 1 John, to us this morning and bring light. The Word of God. If you wonder if, you're, if you wonder if you hate somebody, open up the book. Open up the Word of God. And it will do what? It will bring light to you. It will show you if you have a problem with your brother. And I'm opening this book up, 1 John, to us this morning to bring light into anyone who has darkness. If you're trapped in hate, I plead with you this morning to take care of that problem. Take it to the cross. Be reconciled with your brother and sister. To hate your brother or sister is a big problem. It is a test of our salvation. But again, there's always a way forward in our problem. When we abide in Christ... Or his word, the truth, the light of his word will illuminate our hearts and expose our sins. And we'll be able to bring it to Christ in repentance. That's exciting. Now I know we say we don't want to hear that because we don't really want to be exposed. And let me tell you brothers and sisters, you will much rather want to be exposed today than you will when you meet God. As I close with these verses, look at 1 John 1, 9 again. Verses I've given many times. I'm just going to read them again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As I close with those verses in mind, let the light of the gospel do its work in your heart. Bring you back to Christ, our lawyer, who is standing before the Father, wanting to advocate for us. And I want to read this again. Wanting to open up his portfolio and lay the exhibits of the cross on the bench before the judge, the holy God. Laying out the photographs of the crown of thorns, lashings, mocking soldiers, the agonizing of the cross. And wanting to say this in the case I make for your sins. Hoping you will be redeemed by his blood. Hoping that you will confess your sins for he is always faithful and justice forgive us our sins. Let's remember that um, this week. And as we pray, let's think about that. Let's open up our hearts to the word um, and see what God has in his word, um, in his word for us.